Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you here. Juan Arango here on Beyond the Pitch. I'm joined by two very distinguished gentlemen. I'll, I'll use that term, not loosely on, on this occasion, but I'll definitely use it in a way in which it's quite uh, important because speaking in a more serious tone, two gentlemen have been able to really establish themselves in their respective lines of work. Uh, first and foremost, Rod Underwood, of course, has been a coach for God, nearly almost 25 years, maybe more. He can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. He's been able to coach abroad. He's been able to coach within the United States in, in many capacities as an assistant coach, as a head coach, as a development coach, in, in many aspects. So it is quite important to keep that in mind. Meanwhile, for many of you that know me, of course, this gentleman also is no, no stranger. I've had him on many of my broadcasts. I've worked with him before. He's currently a host, commentator, analyst, pundit, whatever you want to mention, over at B in Sports. And, of course, that's George D. Metellus. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show. First and foremost, let's start with you, Rod. How did you get into coaching? How did you get into, into wanting from going from, a, from being a player to going and becoming a coach? What got you interested? Was it just being involved in the game, or was it just – wanting to be, I don't know, uh, you know, you, you did have an itch for coaching at one point. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes only back to really, for me, when I first started playing, right? Um, I first started playing when I was about, you know, six years old or so. And from that moment, I knew that I'd always be involved in the game. And at an early, early age, like at 16, I really coached my first team, uh, a place where I grew up playing soccer in Atlanta. Um, I went back and I coached like a U10 or U12 team. And then from that point, you know, while I was uh, playing, I started going through the, doing some coaching and then going through the licensing process in soccer. And uh, it just led to what it is today. And it's now it's, you know, it's just so big in the, in, in a different way, because really now the focus is, you know, like any other coach, you want to win everything. You want to coach the biggest teams you can. You want to coach the best players you can. But it's also now yeah. the game to impact, you know, and impact culture and change lives. So that's really what it's evolved to. And I feel like that's a platform that for all my years, I've done nothing else but be involved in the game as a player coach. And it's just, it's the way to do it for me. George, I mean, I, I'm familiar with your career, obviously. But for those of, uh, that are listening, tell people a little bit about your career and, and what you've had to get, get through. And, of course, I'll come back to Rod, and I'll talk about what he's been able to overcome throughout his career as well. But, George, what have you had to do throughout your career to, from where you started to where you're at in order to get there? Whoa, that's a great question. Uh, for me, it's just a matter of working hard, making sure that you get all your information down. But I've been very lucky. I've had people who've given me an opportunity to do this, to be on the air and talk football and uh, allow me to, to be myself. But, uh, you know, it was, you know, going through college and then doing an internship. We interned both, to, both of us together at Gold TV and having to just persevere because there was a long stretch of time where after I did my internship at Gold TV, I wasn't working in football broadcasting. I did some writing for a couple sites, but nothing uh, major in terms of the broadcasting side of it, either a radio or television. So it was just a matter of perseverance and just saying, hey, you know, I really want to do this. So let me keep my foot in 
in the, the industry, if you will, by, as I mentioned before, writing and things like that. A couple, we had a podcast for a long time, you and me and another colleague of ours, Mike Lopez. So that helped keep us, our, our skills sharp. But it really is just a matter of perseverance and just saying, you know what, I like to do this and nothing's gonna stop me from doing it. And then being fortunate enough to be around the right group of people who will give you a chance. who will say, hey, okay, let's see what this guy can do. Let's give him a shot. And I've been, I've been really fortunate in that respect. Ron, what about your case? What, what have you had to do in order to, not only as a player, but also as a coach, uh, to be able to get the opportunities you've had, to be able to, to go and, you know, go and coach abroad, or even go and have an opportunity or be mentioned or be in a conversation for a coaching job here in the United States? Well, it's really, I mean, it's, it's two different things, right? First off, as a player, right? Coming up through the game, you know, because I'm, I've been in the game for about 45 years as a player, as a coach, right? Starting as a young kid all the way till today, yeah. right? So there's been such an evolution of the game, right? From the early 70s where there was NSL, you know, and then through the 80s where there was really no real outdoor soccer. Then the 90s picked up with the USL and, you know, and then the middle 90s picked up with MLS and, you know, you see what you have today. So as a player... To be fair, I, I sort of, so, you know, I'm born in 1967, right? So civil rights, all those things coming out of civil rights, you know, opportunities were there. And I was young enough where those things didn't really have an effect in terms of stopping me from going and doing things, you know, in the 70s. So as a player, I mean, you're really judged on your, I came at a time where you were judged on your ability, not so much, uh, because of what you looked like. Um, so, and then sort of fast forward as a player, you know, in what I would say, getting recruited in, into colleges and um, getting the opportunities to play in college. I mean, a big thing for me, I was the first black player to play at my school at Furman University. This is like 1985. So in essence, that's not a long time ago, right? And, and yeah. really in the big scheme of things, right? So you know, it wasn't easy for players to get those chances to go to college, you know, and for whatever reason those were, but, you know, I had opportunity. it happened for me. And, um, but, but coaching has been really different than, than, uh, than playing because coaching, you're the leader, right? You're the leader. Yes. You're the guy in charge. You're the guy speaking to the media. You're the guy that's, Picking the players, you're the guy that's speaking to the owner. You're the guy that looks for it, right? So that that selection process is really different. And I've always tried to say, okay, the best person gets the job. Um, and for me, something that's really important is my faith, right? My faith is God's going to open whatever door He wants to open up, uh, and you go through that door. So that I've always had my faith perspective, right? But also realize that um, that when you are in, are the one that someone wants you to lead, it's a lot more complicated than just simply being the best and being the, the perfect person for that job. Is it a case of, of you being an outsider? Is it you being different? Is it you not being part of a fraternity, quote unquote fraternity? What, what, where do you see the, the problems? And, and, and people, you know, when, I, when I've talked about you, Rod, in particular, 
people say, yeah, great coach. He, he understands his game. He understands the game. So then if it's based on ability, why aren't you getting those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, if I look at myself personally, right? If I look at the people that I know in the game, you know, at the youth level, I know at, you know, professional level, college level, people that I know, I'm not, and I don't feel like I'm an outsider, right? In terms of, I'm not a guy that could, you know, I'm a guy that could pick up the phone and call, quote unquote, one of the biggest clubs, you know, some of the biggest youth clubs in the, in the country, and they'll know yeah. who I am and they'll pick up my phone. Same thing at the professional level, same thing at the college level. So I don't consider as a, I don't consider myself as an outsider by no means, yeah. right? As an outsider, um, and when we talk about ability, right, it's always going to be jaded from my eyes, right? And I feel like I'm as good as anybody else in terms of, of course, you know, right, coaching right? and understanding the game. So that's and and I say that not because I'm an arrogant guy and I'm I'm not, just because I see the game, I talk the game have conversations. I hear the comments that players say back about me that says, hmm, okay, I know what I'm talking about, right? So for me, I think it goes beyond just employability, right? And the most difficult thing for me is that let's talk from the top down because there's a thing for me. Yeah. We're all, at the end of the day, we're talking about leadership and we're talking about building something. And when we don't have let me take a step back and let me jump right into something, right? So 2014, I worked with Preki uh, at Sacramento. And um, and that was because the, I was working with the Timbers, Portland Timbers at the time, and Gavin and the ownership in, in Portland and the ownership in Sacramento developed a partnership. And, you know, so my job was to go down as with Sacramento and I worked with Preki. Um, so 2014 won the championship. 2005, at the end of the 14th season, mm -hmm. uh, I became the academy director. And that was really a convoluted situation. It wasn't what they sold it out to be. It's okay, it's a promotion. And it was in a sense of promotion because you became a leader of a particular part of, of, the, uh, of the organization, but it was also taken away from working day to day with professionals, right? Mm. And we all yeah. know the reality behind it. To, to work with the professionals every day is the biggest job of, of any club. Of course. Uh, from the perspective of what you, how you, how you are perceived, let's put it that way, how you're perceived from mm -hmm. the outside, that's part of it. That's the biggest part, right? Right. Uh, right. So I became the academy director. Uh, Preki left uh, in 2000. I think you guys probably remember back when you might get a job in the EPL and might get a job wherever, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I was the academy director. This is like 15, right? And I personally, after winning the championship at 14, no one ever talked to me about becoming the, taking Preki, taking over for Preki when he left. No one mm -hmm. spoke to me. Wow. Uh, wow. So. Oh, wait, they, wait, they didn't speak to you or, 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 or they just took, it for granted that you were in the conversation or, or just nothing at all i mean no interview nothing what happened there so put it this way how i found out was through rumor that's how i found out so i went right to the source oh, okay. i went right to the source and said, hey you know you i said you know i would want that job you know that 
why don't you even talk to me? Even if I don't get the job, well, why didn't you talk to me? I went right to the source. And then he, then they sort of, how'd you find out? How'd you find out? I said, you know, I know, you know, I'm on the inside of this club. How am I not going to know? Right? Right. So, um, so, you know, they bring in a guy, right? Um, and this guy, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say he did a bad job. I can't say he did a good job. I think he did, he did okay, right? I'm not here to knock anybody. Everybody gets a chance. You know, that's great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that was like, that was, that was really disappointing, the fact that I didn't even get in a conversation. And everybody, everybody in the leadership roles in Sacramento knew that I was in Sacramento because I wanted to do first-team football every day. It, it, it seems. It seems. So yeah, no. So Rod, do you think uh, I'm just gonna? I'll just. I'll break the ice here with Go the ahead. elephant in the room. Do you think it was because you were a black man that you got overlooked, or what? What are your thoughts about that question? How How do you think about that situation? I think it was a lot of things, really. I mean, okay. I think it was. I think it was a combination, right? Uh, and let's. For me, it's very clear, right? It's very clear, right? Uh, just throughout America, that it's not easy getting a job as an American black, white, whatever, right? Right. If you look at the coaches, especially at the lower leagues, USL, because I go through, let's, I go through, and I count. I say, okay, there's this number of Americans, there's this number of blacks, there's this number of Hispanics. I count and see how many people are in these jobs, right? I, I, I go through and I look because it's like, are we really representing? So I think it's a combination of being American. I think it's a combination of being black. I think it's a combination of uh, maybe they're not thinking I'm good enough. And that's fine. I, I have no qualms about someone saying, hey, Rod, we don't think you're the right guy for the job because you're not good enough. Yeah. But because that's the nature of sport, right? We all grew up in sport, right? And it's at times it's subjective yeah right yeah right. so i have no, i have no qualms with anybody saying well we don't think you're good enough I, okay thank you that's fine but when you help the team win a championship when you help a team win a championship and you have a good relationship right because now even on top of that right so i was running the academy there was no academy and i had great people around me right i mm-hmm. jeremy, was, jeremy was the academy manager he really helped put this together. The owner of the club really helped put this academy together. People in the community helped put this academy together. But I was a leader. I was the guy in charge as the academy director. We had 700 players show up for tryouts. 700 for a youth academy tryouts in 2015. Wow. Wow. In Sacramento, I, in Northern California. Sacramento, yeah. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. So, yeah, good. So my work was showing that I could do something, I could lead, right? I could at least lead and put things together and lead and make success, right? At least, at least. So for me, that was at least like a conversation, right? At least like a conversation. And it, and it just didn't happen. Mm. How, how, how was that ratio that you're talking, you, you're talking, putting a lot of factors in just there a second, we're, we're just talking with Rod Underwood and George Mantellos here on, on Beyond the Pitch. You, you, you mentioned the factors, you know, being a you know, black man, an American, man soccer guy all these things are not good enough when did that ratio i mean if there's a way to kind of measure it when did that ratio kind of change a little bit 
in the future and you say, no, 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 there's other factors. There's, you know, yeah, I, I think it's the color of my skin has a little bit more to do. Um, this factor has a lot more to do. Them seeing me in a different light has more to do. When, when did that change a little bit more on your end? I'm going to ask you the same question in a second. Well, from here, here's a catch, right? So yeah. there were a lot of years, right? Especially in the early years in the early years coaching the USL. I was the only black coach around, right? I was the only black coach around early years of the USL. Maybe, you know, maybe not, it might have been one more, right? It was so minute, we didn't even know each other. Put it that way, right? Damn. So, you know, um, I would have, right? I would literally have, right? Going, say we're going into a match, right? We're going to a match. Got my assistant coach beside me. I'm standing right here. The officials, the officials would walk past me and speak to my assistant, put the hand out to the assistant before they put the hand out to me. Whoa. themselves. Wow. That's... Granted now... Was it, was it, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Let me, so, so there's no doubt. So there's no... Oh, you know, it was an accident. Did they know you were the coach? How would you not know I'm the coach? Hmm. That's they, all you need to say. Yeah, that's, all that's you know. it. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to leave that little door that was, you know, kind of creaking open maybe for someone to say, oh, but, you know, maybe they didn't know. Or did I? No, there was no doubt. That, yeah. that, that's, that's, what, that's why the reason I asked that question. George, on your end, too, I mean, the reason I brought both of you on, it, it, there's one little phrase I remember from, from Murder to Excellence in saying, you know, Domino, Domino, you know, only spot a few blacks the higher I go. Yeah. That's the reason why I brought you guys here, because – at one point, just like Ron being the only black soccer coach around, dude, you were the only black soccer broadcaster around anywhere. Yeah. Which now you have many national team players that have, that have come into the mix a little bit more, but never a broadcaster. What was your situation? And maybe it's a little bit different in your case because you didn't come in in a quote-unquote American setting, if you will. Right. How was it being the only guy? It was, it's a, it was, let me put it to you like this. I have had, I want to say, I say thank you to my Air Force discipline because if I didn't have Air Force discipline and patience, I probably would have got fired a long time ago. Some of the things people have said to me at work on social media requires, and I'm sure Rod, you go through this as well, with some of the, th the things people will tell you on social media, work, what have you it requires a great deal of patience. It requires a great deal of biting your tongue, even swallow a little bit of your pride because you're doing what you love to do. I've, I can tell you right now, I've been in the business 10 years. Uh, well, yeah, it'll be 10 years in November. And yeah. I, I can count on my, both of my hands and still have fingers left over with the number of black people I've worked with. And not just in front of the camera. I'm not talking about former coaches or, or ex-players that come on a show. I'm talking about behind the scenes in every aspect of a network. So that gets, it gets, that gets frustrating after a while when you work and you barely see people who look like you. And, and so you have to learn, first of all, you have to, to be open-minded enough to, to accept and learn about other people's cultures, the, the dominant culture at your job. And then you have to swallow your pride because you're going to hear things that you don't want to hear that you shouldn't hear at the job or on social media. And then third, at least for me, maybe you could say I'm insecure when it comes to this third point, but I feel like I have to be not as good, but 
better. I have to know more. You know, Juan, you know me, I speak Spanish. Part of that is because, well, part of it is because I'm single and I want to get women. But main, the, the number two, you know, the number mm -hmm. two reason is <laughs> I, it helps me in my job. You know, the jobs that I've gotten, I don't know if I would have gotten them if I didn't speak Spanish. And I have counterparts who don't speak a word of Spanish and they're in the a same lick. position. Not even a word, a lick. A lick. They don't speak a lick, lick of Spanish and they're in the same position as me. I have colleagues who don't have degrees. I have a degree from the University of Miami, a bachelor's. And I went to broadcasting school afterwards, after that. So it, it can be frustrating, but at the same time, you, you say, look, this is what I love to do and nothing can stop me from doing what I love to do. Just like Rod, Rod loves the coach. He's gonna be a great, he's a great coach. He loves to do it. So whatever little obstacle it is, whether it's cultural, racial, uh, work ethic, whatever little obstacle is put in front of you, you still have to overcome it and fight through it because we, in the end, whether we see it or not, and I'm sure we both see it, we are an example. I've had black people on social media come up to me and say, hey man, you're the only one doing it. Keep up the good work. Thanks for doing it. It's good to see people who look like me on air talking about soccer that, that aren't former athletes, former players. That means a lot. And that motivation keeps you going, even in the face of a lot of BS. Because trust me, I've, I've seen my share of BS and I've had to go through a lot of BS. So it, it, it's, um, it, it, like I said, I'm glad I have that Air Force discipline to keep me from losing my mind. Similar to once once said that, that you, you have to, you know, I guess you have to run like a black, you have to, you know, run like a black man to live like a white man. Hmm. Or you have to work twice as hard to be, you know, you have to work twice as hard to be half as good. And I've heard that one too a lot. Is that what you think in your respective lines of work when it comes to being successful or at least being mentioned on par with many people in your, in your industry, in your respective industries, I should say? Rod, go ahead for you first. <laughs> George, you're like, I, look, I inherited my, my dad, I inherited my dad's work ethic, right? My dad, my, my aunt will say that my dad had a job as long as they can remember, right? And when he retired for the first time, it's like, he'll be working again, right? And within two years, he had another job doing the same thing, right? So I think part of that, I, so do I feel like I have to work harder? I feel like, or at I, least if there's that premonition, that 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 belief in there that you you have to do or know more, work harder, that type of thing. Be better, yeah. Yeah. It, I would say it's hard to say that because, like, for for me again, like I inherited that work ethic from my dad. That it's like you know yeah. you work from sun up to sundown. And then when you go to bed, you can wake up in the middle of the night and work more. That's the kind of work ethic, right? Mm -hmm. But understanding, understanding that when I put my resume next to someone else and it shines head and shoulders above and I don't still get the job, I would say from that perspective, yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm with Rod on this one. Yeah, I, I feel like I can't do, if I'm more deserving or put in more work, 
I'm going to get less pay or the same amount of pay, even though I've put in more work or I've, I've accomplished more or have better credentials. So there is that thought that you have to do more in order to get to the same position. So I, I, I'm definitely, I definitely feel that way. Maybe it's changing. I don't know, but I definitely feel like just off of my personal experience, like I said, college degree, broadcasting afterwards, learning a, a language that's not my native cultural language to get to the same point as, as my colleagues. To me, that's putting in extra work. That's having to be you, you, better in your than case, you basically know three because you also know Creole. Yeah. Cause Creole as well. Right. And having to, to, to negotiate those three and getting to the point where I could even be in the, in the conversation with them, be at the same level of pay, same level of exposure as my colleagues. And they didn't have, they don't have one third, the, the, the credentials or didn't have to go through one third of what I had to go through. So I, I definitely feel like there is, it, there is that, that, that feeling that, okay, I have to, I have to be, I have to do more in order to get to the same spot, but in a way it's good because you, Rod, you mentioned work ethic and work ethic, work ethic is, is, is massively important. When you, mm -hmm. if you feel that way, it makes you work harder. Yeah. And, and in your own mind, it's an accomplishment. The fact that I could speak a language that a lot of my colleagues are, have problems speaking, or I have a degree, I've done this, I was in the air force. That makes me feel good. Like that's a great accomplishment. And that even if I don't get the same amount of pay or same amount of exposure, I still have that as, as something that gives that that's an accomplishment that gives me confidence going forward. And, and for something that it's, I guess for lack of a better term, not quote unquote American. When did you start seeing, when did you start seeing, Hey, you know what? Look, man, this, this situation here, I'm not going to progress as a coach. I'm not going to, do you feel like you have a bit of a glass ceiling, a lower glass ceiling compared to some of the other of your colleagues in your respective fields based on, you know, what's going on based on, uh, you know, the color of your skin, based on your culture, based on, you know, your experiences per se, are you seeing that there's, there's been a limitation in your respective careers over that? Well, I, I, I feel as such because, um, I feel it, I feel in, in that way because it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're out of a job, right? And yeah. it's just, it's just the nature of coaching, right? So that's just the way it is. Coaching, you're always out of a job. If you're in a job, you're out of a job. That's mm -hmm. all yeah. fine. But you find yourself, right, taking jobs, taking jobs that you know it's going to be difficult, that the budget's not going to be right, that you don't mm -hmm. have players, but you say, okay, if I prove myself in this job, maybe someone will see me, right? So you, you wind up taking all these bad jobs because of the system. Yeah. And you create this, you create this road that it looks like you're not good because you've been in bad situations. You got to try to explain your way out of all those, of why you were in those jobs. And you almost paint you, because of the system, sometimes you paint yourself into a bad light because you, the system has forced you to take jobs or not forced you because that's not fair. You make your own decisions. Yeah. You've taken, you've taken, You've taken positions because you you feel like personally that if you don't, you're going to get further and further behind, and you're not staying 
relevant in the current market. So therefore, but then you kill yourself because you're taking a bad job. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me follow up with that because that seems interesting because of course here in the US, many are going crazy over, you know, Jesse Marsh. I'm like, wait a second, Jesse Marsh has been abroad two or three years, yet no one talks about Rod Underwood, who's been going, uh, who's been going, uh, who's been going abroad since what, 2009, 2010, taking coaching jobs there. I don't hear anyone talking about Rod Underwood. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's twofold, right? It's twofold that some of the jobs that I've taken, I mean, the jobs I have had, right, have been little jobs, right, in the, in the eye of mm-hmm. soccer, right? And it's twofold. I wanted to take those jobs, but also those jobs were the only jobs that were available to me, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to coach. I've always wanted to coach outside the country. Yeah. Those jobs were, would I have stayed in the U.S. if a big job was there? Of course I would have, because it's a lot easier to coach in your country, right? Because yeah. It's just a lot easier to coach in the country yeah. than pack up your family or don't pack up your family and you move away to another country and you learn the culture and you and, and all these dynamic things, right? So those were the jobs that were available at the time. Did I want that I want to coach inside the country? Yes. But would I have stayed if jobs that were good inside the country would have come? You know, that's just but I, I enjoyed my time at all those and you know, to, to get outside the country, I mean, it's a big thing, right? Because for me, when I see it, right, um, I see it as a chance to be in a different country, to learn a different culture, all these positives, right? But also to, um, so you've done something that other people haven't done, you know, and, and I, right. I, I would think, right, that those would open those opportunities, coaching outside, right, would would open up more doors and open up more opportunities. George, do you feel the same? Do, do you feel like, like, like at times, I'm not saying always, but there could be at times that you go and you say, man, I, I've got a bit of a low ceiling myself. Uh, yeah, I definitely feel that way sometimes. That's for sure. And I have to fight those feelings because you can't, you can't limit yourself in your career and in your life. You know, you have to be able to say, okay, make, this door is an open right now but maybe in a few years it'll open up but sometimes I def there is there are feelings where I feel like okay uh there is a glass ceiling I'm only going to go so far and then you know your co- you see other colleagues doing other things and moving on and you go man you know I'm I, I mean no disrespect to them but I'm just as good as they are I, I got more personality I got more uh, I got as much knowledge and if I don't have the knowledge I certainly can get the knowledge as as, as well as some of my colleagues that have moved on and yet, this is my, this is where I'm at right now. So, uh, and a lot of it for me, it, it's not, look, the race has something to do with it, but I, I, as someone who tries to look at that option as the last option, I try to look at, okay, if I'm, if I'm, this is not happening for me, what am I doing wrong? What did I, am I, you know, am I saying, is my presence off my camera? Am I looking at the camera right? Am I saying this wrong? Am I facts wrong? Like, look at all the other options before I get down to that. Uh, but sometimes in your, in your, in, well, in my kind of, if I want to say lowest moments or most frustrating moments, it's easy for me to look at how I look and say, oh, you know, I'm black. That's why this is not happening for me. And I have to fight that because, and like Rod said, there are a lot of other factors that go into certain decisions in life yeah. in general. So 
sometimes I do feel that way, but then I have to fight that feeling and say, look, man, George, what can you do to improve? What can you do to be, to be better? And look, in, look inward first before I blame anything outward. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like personal responsibility. That, that, I forgot yeah. who said that, but that's what it's all about. Trying to look inward first before you start blaming external factors. But to answer your question, there have been times where I felt like, okay, I'm at a glass ceiling here and I'm getting pretty close to it. Well, well okay, that, that, that's all fine and great, but there does come a time where, and, and I feel it too in, in, in my position, again, I, I don't feel the same way as you do and you don't feel the same way as I do, but to a certain point, that that elephant in the room has to be addressed. When you get to that certain point, you, you start saying, wait, no, okay, I've already checked. I look good. I'm, I'm not looking sloppy. I haven't done my work in a sloppy manner. Uh, I, I've been on point every single time, whether it's on studio or, or, or whether it's in the studio or whether it's on a pitch. What, when you, have you had to confront that issue with someone? Have you ever had to say, hey, you know what? Dude, uh, wait, okay. You know, I, I've been looking at everything. I've asked other people for, for, for their feedback. All the boxes are checked. Everything's fine. So why? And, and then, of course, that's the one that, that ends up being not, you know, not, not the one that, that ends up being addressed, but still the one that ends up being, you know, has, has, one has to start talking about it at some point because it is a factor whether we like it or not. Or, or, or is it just me trying to contrive something that, that's actually not there? Well, here, here's the thing, right? Yeah. Here, Here's the thing. I, I'm I'm with George, right? And the perspective yeah. that you look inward first, right? I, I believe that because as a coach, as a coach, what I tell my players, right? At every level I coach is, mm-hmm. if I ever come to you and say, it's your fault or come to you in a way that makes it seem as if it's your fault as the group, I look at myself, I examine myself first because something I've learned, I used to when I first started coaching, soon as the game was over, I'd go in in the locker room after the match and maybe talk 20 minutes to the team, right? And the emotions are high and you say dumb things or you're really, really high because you want it, you're really, really low. So what I, what I decided to do was is I decided to, when the game is done, everyone gets a handshake, good job, guys, blah, blah, blah. If we've got commitments, you know, interviews, we've got to do an outing. Guys, you know, do all your things you need to do. We'll talk tomorrow or we'll talk two days from now, right? So it gives me time to examine, okay, what could I have done to help the team get the result that we wanted to get or help the team simply play better? So that's the, that's before I even look at the external, I look at the internal and there's always a checklist, right? There's always a checklist and what, what really what really has sort of changed my thinking over the last really, I mean, really since all the, the way the country looks right now is that the number of stories that I hear of my former players or people that I don't know talking about they've experienced the same things that I have experienced, such as getting pulled over by the police just because. I mean, at one time I'm driving from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Tennessee to drop off my oldest daughter to meet my my stepmom and my aunts and my nieces and nephews and she's going to go spend a few weeks in, in Atlanta with them. 
and I'm driving, I'm driving through Tennessee. There's a car in front of me. I'm right behind the car and there's a third car behind me. And we're, we're all speeding, right? We're on the freeway, we're speeding. But I'm the, I'm the middle car. I get stopped and pulled over. The car behind me continues. The car in front, who is going the fastest, continues on. I get pulled over. The police officers, can I search your car? They take myself and my daughter. My daughter is, oh gosh, she can't be over, let's say less than 10 years old, right? Less than 10. Mm -hmm. And she's probably more like six or seven. So they put us in the back of the police car, her and I, while, we're, while they're searching the car. In the front of the car, we don't notice that first when we get in, so we sit down, there's a police dog in the front of the car barking, barking, barking. That was the cages there so the dog could get back to get us. The police officer comes to us and approximately, we, we'd sit there for maybe two or three minutes, right? Because he goes to the trunk first. Only thing in the trunk is my daughter's bag she's going to use for the summer and my bag. They open up the bag first. And on the top of my bag is my Bible. He closes the trunk, he comes in and says, you're free to go. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I've heard these kind of stories over the last few days, over the last few weeks. And then it, it, it put me into a, a state of going back and trying to run through my life. And then these were these feelings that come of late of saying, well, just maybe, just maybe, yeah, these, all these other factors, maybe there's a better coach with, a, with more experience and blah, 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 blah. But that can't be at every job, man. Yeah. Can't be at every job. Because I have purposely put my CV into a job that pays half as what I really deserve to get paid. And knowing the level of people are going to apply, I should be in the top 10 at least. And sometimes mm -hmm. I never apply. And yeah. I've done that purposefully. So hearing the stories of other people over the last week or so about what's happening in the country, go back and reflect. And then as I reflect, I start to say, hmm, just maybe. Because here's the last thing I want to do, right? And, mm -hmm. and I'll to share the story. I, I've always been an inclusive person in the sense of it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what race, it doesn't really matter. I look at you as who you are, you're human, and that's it. You know, my first wife is Mexican. So my oldest daughter is half Mexican. My wife now, we've been married for almost 15 years, is white. So all my kids are mixed. So I've always lived in a mixed environment, even growing up, right? Even growing up as a black kid growing up in America, very few black kids played soccer because I'm over, I'm 53 years old. So very few kids, kids didn't really, black kids really didn't start playing in droves until the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. So I've no, always me... been, I've always been the minority in the group for the most part. Where I went to Furman University, right? I told you before, I was the first black player. So as my mind starts to wander back and start to say, well, just maybe, man, just maybe. Rod, let me, let me, let me follow up with that question. And, and it's more of a fill in the blank than anything else. I'll play devil's advocate here a little bit. I'm the general manager of the hiring, the person that hires you to be the coach. And they come up to you and say, Rod, you, you know, great candidate, but you are missing blank. That's why we went with X. What was that blank in a lot of cases? 
You know, I don't, I don't know, right? I don't know. And I, I just share, I share, and I don't want to throw the team names into it, but recently. No, 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 recently, no need to, no need to. I mean, just experiences that you've had. I'm, I'm, I'm more than that. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, it's not about that. Yeah, you know, recently I was in for jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And both GMs, right? Both GMs, mm-hmm. this is a professional, but both GMs said, excuse me, one of the GMs said, you're my guy. I want you to have the job before I leave the interview, right? You know, you go in, you fly in, you spend a couple of days, you meet everybody, go, of course. Hi. Don't get the job. Mm. And a second time I go into another interview, GM doesn't say that you're my guy, but he says, boy, I really, really like you and I, I could see you here, right? He could go as far as saying you're my guy. You get the job. No reason why. And not like, hey, man, thank you, but, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and the, you know, the replies are, we, we, we think we found someone a little, little, that fits what we want a little bit better. And that's, a, that's, an easy, that's an easy way to say it, right? Yeah. That's an easy way to say it. We found someone that fits a little bit better. You know, that's just, I've, I've been in hiring positions and I've used the exact same phrase, right? Mm-hmm. What, what does that usually mean? We found somebody better or we found somebody that fits better or that you've come to realize, or at least you, you think, I mean, is, is it that they're a better man manager? Is it a better, I don't know. I mean, you tell me. Well, the first one I explained to you was the person that got the job ahead of me had a, a career, not really in head coaching, but assisting in, in other areas but really no head coaching experience. And that person got the job. Hmm. The other guy, they got the other job. This guy was a national team player, right? So, so we, his resume spectacular in terms of his playing. One of the best players ever play in, in, play in the country, for our country. So, when no, but, but the coaching aspect of it was really no different than mine. Mine probably mine was more experienced, but okay. it's job. So you know when things like that happen, it's kind of you have to kind of just like tip your hat and say, okay, yeah, this guy, I know this guy, I know he, he his pedigree, blah, blah blah blah. So for me, when you lose that, like when you lose that, like the second guy compared to the first guy, it's a little bit easier to swallow. But when you lose out to you're clearly better, then that's you just have a hard time swallowing. Of course, yeah, yeah. George, yeah. George, what about you? Have, have, I mean, I know oh. some, but but I'd rather you say it. Okay. And I'd rather you and you and I'd rather you go and say certain things instead of me trying to put things, <laughs> you know, trying to <laughs> put words in your mouth, if you know what I mean. Right, uh, right. Well, for me personally, what, what do you feel now? Yeah. Well, well, for me personally, it, it's a situation where. Uh, you know, I've been in, in, in Rod's shoes. I mean, when I was, I remember I was 16 years old. I was living, my mom and dad, you know, in the house, were both we were middle-class kids. And I was in my neighborhood. We lived in a two-story house, me and my brother, my mom, and my dad, in that neighborhood in Marbella Park, way out west in Dade County, Miami. And me and my friends were in my car going, I don't know for where we we're going, probably going to meet some girls, whatever. And we stopped and we saw another group of our friends 
and there's between there's like maybe seven of us. Five of them are black, two are like Hispanic. So mm-hmm. we're there, we're chilling. We're 15, 16 year old boys in the 90s. So you all, hey, what's up, man? How you doing, y'all? You ain't nothing, okay? Let's see what's up. And we were wrestling. We weren't fighting. We didn't have any weapons, nothing like that. We're in our neighborhood. Everybody knows us in the neighborhood. And I swear, about five cop cars came just screaming around the corner like like a building exploded or something. It was crazy. They put shotguns to our heads, made us kneel on the ground, and they searched my car. And we didn't have any guns. We weren't fighting. We, We were wrestling. We were all friends. We know each other. And they searched my car. Now, I'm not a criminal because my, my parents raised me better than that. And yeah. they didn't find anything in my car. But we know friends and people who had stuff planted in their car. So if they were really exactly. evil, if they were really evil, they could have put drugs in my car. They could have put a gun in my car. And they didn't. And I, I, for them to put the shotgun in my head, and then one of my friends was like, we didn't do anything wrong. They're like, shut up. And one of them said the N-word to us as well to my friend who was talking trash because the cops were white or white Hispanic. And we were, man, I was scared for my life. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend to be like hard or anything. I wasn't, I was scared. I I felt like I had a shotgun two inches from my head. I can almost feel my brains coming out the other side. I was so scared. So we all have, you look like me and Rod, you're going to have these stories, right? And we were blessed that nothing happened to us physically. We didn't get injured or anything like that. But when it comes to the career, you know, I remember when I graduated college, I couldn't find a job in broadcasting. So I had to work, you know, and island people, you know, my parents are Haitian. Island people is like, you're not staying. My mom's like, you're not staying in my house, no job. You better work. So I got a job. I was up. I had to do something after I graduated. So I went to bartending school, went to bartending school, two week course, easy, passed it. I was the only black person in my class. Everybody else was Hispanic, white Hispanic, because this is in South Florida. About seven, seven of us total. And so I go out looking for work. So every day I'm going to three or four different places. I put on a nice shirt, tie, slacks, and I'm going and I'm applying for jobs. Like every day, three or four different places. No, nothing. I'm not even getting an interview. Nothing, nothing. Every day grinding. They had a job placement at the bartending school, ABC Bartending School off Flagler Street. And every Thursday, I'd go to the job placement. Okay, George, here's a, here's a, a place that's hiring. Okay, so I go there, dress up nice, thing, and, and I apply, nothing. A week goes by, two weeks go by. And after the second week, I go to the job placement, and the guy running the school says, hey, everybody in your class got a job already. I said, oh, that's great, good for them. I said, but I'm still looking. That's all right, we'll keep going, you'll find something. Another week goes by where every day, three or four different places, I'm, I'm signing, I'm applying. I mean, I thought that because I had a college degree that was stopping people from hiring me. So I took that off. I wouldn't put it on my, on my application. So, so now you didn't even go to college at that so point. I didn't even go to college at that point because I thought because I had a college degree, I was quote unquote overqualified. So I took that off of my job application and I still wasn't getting hired. Nothing happened. Uh, three weeks. A month after I finished the course, I didn't get a job. And I'll never, I'll be 98 years old with dementia and I will not forget this, what, what, what happened to me. Because I went to the job placement a month later and the, the man who ran the school was a really nice older Jewish man, really nice man. He says, George, what are you doing here? You don't have a job yet? I said, no, I've been going every day, sometime on Saturdays for a month. 
and I can't get anything. He looks at me and he goes, you know what the problem is? Or, you know, no, he didn't say the problem. He said, you know what it could be? I said, what? He looks at me and he holds up his arm, takes his finger and he rubs his skin as if to say, because of your skin color, you ain't getting these jobs. I got a job finally two weeks after that. So the people who graduated in my, in my little class got a job in two weeks. I got a job in a month and a half. A month and a half after everybody else two weeks later. Three times longer. And I was applying every day three or four different places in, in South Florida. So that's, I can, that, that leads to some frustration. And then if you're talking about the broadcasting, it's just the lack of faces. You know, I mean, it's not proportionate to, and, and managers as well, it's not proportionate to the players on the pitch. If black players are 15%, and let's go with European football, because um, where I work, we do European football. Well, we have Libertadores as well. So let's say Europe and South America, which are the two huge hubs of football, right? If it's, if there's 15% of the players are black, let's say, and this is just a number I'm making up. I don't know for yeah. sure. I would think that the broadcaster should be 15% black and the manager should be 15% black. If we're talking about proportionate to the number of players, and we know that's not even close to that. So there, there is an issue in football when it comes to, to race and to, to people of darker complexions. Now, we can break through that. I'm, I'm positive we can break through that, but it, it's, it's going to take time and it's going to take some people who are just bold enough to say, hey, this is the situation. And, and I, I've seen people come and go at my job and my career and on different networks, at my network, at different networks, and they're all, nothing changes. It's all the same. So there's a systemic problem here and a, a cult, there's a systemic problem and there's also a problem of people who still think that people of color, darker skinned people of color are inferior. Now they're not gonna say it explicitly, outwardly, because who, who wants to come off as racist? Nobody ever wants to be that publicly. But you can yeah. tell by the hiring processes and the images you see on the football field with barely any black managers, any barely any black broadcasters, that's still a problem in, in the world that we that we're carving out a, a living in. And it's it, it kind of also facilitates the narrative. And I'll, I'll tell you this because of my experience with one particular pundit with former Liverpool player Steve McMahon. Uh, when I was doing the World Cup uh, punditry over in, in the Caribbean, and you'd constantly hear him say, oh, Raheem Sterling lacks intelligence. Raheem Sterling doesn't have, you know, tactical awareness. All of these types of things. Oh, you know, and we hear it also on television too, George, Rod. Uh, the fact that African teams, oh, fast, big, strong, yeah. lacking tactical awareness, lacking intelligence. Yeah. Now, and, and, and I ask more, not as a person interviewing, but I'm asking it more as, as a person that would want to help out, that I think I can say has tried to help out. Sometimes it, it, it comes out good, sometimes it doesn't. What do you do or what, what can one do in order to combat those notions, to combat those, those, those preconceived notions that you know, the black broadcaster or the black football player or the black coach or whoever it may be lack X, Y, or Z. Let me just say, and, and 
you guys, since you guys are the, you know, you guys are the broadcasters. The other day I was watching Dortmund and uh, Bayern. And something that really stuck out, st stuck out with me or, you know, really jumped out at me was between the two teams, and you guys probably can go back and find the, find the game and then see it to get there. Yeah. But there was like, between the two teams, there was seven to ten black players on the pitch at one time. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, what, what's my point? We know the history of Germany. And we know when they even had their first black player to play on the national team. That was, that was in the 2000s, I want to say, right? Uh, my, Gerald Asamoah, maybe? I think, yeah. if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Asamoah, yeah. yeah, Asamoah. And then they had Cacau, of course, who played with, but he was Brazilian. Right. Yeah. But but of course, then afterwards you start to see the bulletins. You start to see those, yeah. those types of players come more frequently. Albeit, I am I'm using frequently, but you know you you have had a number of players come out. You know, black German players in, yeah. in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Right. My my point is right. We know the history of Germany, going from Hitler forward, right, and and the racism and East Germany, West Germany, all those different things. How can a country since, let's say, 1945, and my parents were born in 1945, and they're like 75 years old, in 75 years, it can seem as if Germany is a little more progressive than we are. And don't get me wrong about America. I'm all about raising the flag and supporting America because I believe in the country. And, the, you know, I believe in the country. Yeah. But it raises the question to me, how can they have what they have and we can be at the place where we are today with people on the streets doing what they're doing? Mm, yeah. That's I don't a, know, George. Yeah, I'll <laughs> that's a great question. That <laughs> uh, I, I, it's funny, Rod. My parents are born in the, in the, in the forties as well. My, my mom is 70 something. My dad's 70 something. So uh, there's, there's that. Don't be saying that too loud, man. Your mom's going to get mad at you. Oh She's yeah. Like, yeah. 53, well, dude. He's 53. She had you uh, when she was like 19 or something. <laughs> extremely young don't be saying I, that i will not be giving her the 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 link for this uh conversation well we'll just leave it at that i'm scared of my mom still she, yeah of course yeah i am too man yeah uh but I, I think look there's my parents lived in europe for a while they lived in spain actually they started dating in spain then they came to the united states and got married and had kids and one thing my mom tells me she says even look, Europe has its history of, of racism, prejudice and all of that. But there seems to be in Europe a little more of an open mindedness to it. Now, they're not perfect by any means, not at all. So well, I'm not trying to say it's utopia because it's definitely not. But mm -hmm. there, there, they seem to there's an openness. There's an openness to intelligence, to intellectualism over there that maybe in America we don't have yet. America is a very young country compared to most of the countries in the world also mm -hmm. and i mean rod you have kids i have a nephew and niece you know how young kids are man sometimes they're so stubborn you're like come on you know i'm older i know i know what i'm talking about you know and they're so stubborn they don't want to learn so sometimes american america as a young country are like young kids they they there's examples of what to do but they're so stubborn that they don't want to listen so they're kind of like that be, yeah yeah okay. So that could be part of it as well. Uh, be also, you got to remember, Europe doesn't have the racial history that America does. I mean, America had slavery for 400 plus years. Then yep. you add Jim Crow on top of that, 
that is still affecting us to this day. So most, I would venture to say that most black people who are in Europe are not quote unquote native Europeans. They came from like my parents, they came from the Caribbean or from the continent from nations on the continent of Africa or, or someplace, well, the, the other places, you know, so from South America, from, from South North America. America. Yeah. Exactly. So they have a different racial history than the United States does. I, I got to say United States because America is the whole continent, United States. Yeah. So uh, that, that plays a factor into it as well. And it is just, it's just the situation where here in America, we still have to get over looking at e- each other because of our, our, our skin color and our differences and our culture. Look, a lot of people say embrace the similarities. And I kind of say, that's BS. I say, that's, embrace easy. The, that's easy. I say embrace the differences, you know, like I've gone, I've met, I grew, I'm a Haitian. My parents are Haitian. I grew up in Miami. I didn't grow up on Peruvian food, but you know what? It's different than Haitian food. I'm going to try it. I grew up, I didn't grow up on Indian food. When I say India, I mean the nation, the country of India. Yeah. Right? I didn't grow up on that. That's not native cultural food for me. But if somebody says, let's go to an Indian restaurant, I'm going to go eat it because it's different. It's something different to try and, and, and incorporate in your life. It might make you feel good. I was in, when I was at the University of Miami, I was a member of the African Student Union. Now, of course, I did it for the women. I'm just being honest. Okay. But Don't we all? Yeah, we all, especially when you're 19, 20, you know, that age group. But the, the side effect and actually what I turned out to be the best part of it was the fact that I got to learn a culture that wasn't my own. I embraced the differences. And I don't think America, we keep focusing on let's similar. What's similar? What's the same? Damn that. Think about what's different in a positive light and say, hey, let me try this. Let me try this food. Let me try this music. Let me try something different, the culture that's different. I think in Europe, they have that open mindedness to do it. And now it's not perfect by any means but they're a little more open-minded to try it. While here, it's like, nah, I'm, I'm black American. I got to do my black American thing. I'm white. I got to do my white thing. I'm Hispanic. Mm-hmm. I got to stay Hispanic. And so my mom always says America's very cliquish. And she's right on point with that. And until we start saying, look, you're a human being. This is the kind of food you cook. All right, let me try it. Oh, it's delicious. And that yeah. breaks down barriers. And when you break down barriers, that's when you start to get people to come together. And football is a great example of breaking down barriers, even with all its yeah. issues. No, no, you're right. You're right. But, but I mean, and you, especially, well, even Rod to this point, because if, if we go back to Rod in Atlanta, Atlanta is a completely different, and, and you can correct me here if, if, I'm, if I'm misleading anyone, Atlanta now is different than Atlanta 20, 30 years ago. Correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you – Yeah. I mean – Atlanta started to change when they had the Olympics, right? That's when it yeah. really a melting pot, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, uh, I mean, the, the African, African Caribbean population, you know, even Hispanic population, massive in Atlanta. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a melting pot compared to mm-hmm. what you know. Growing up, I mean, growing up, you were either black or white. That's all you really knew. You didn't know. Yeah. You didn't know. <clears throat> To be fair, even if you were Caribbean, they didn't say you were Caribbean. Black. You were black. Yeah. Yeah. There was no distinguishing. There was no distinguishing of the of the cultures. And now, I mean, at least they they begin to say, okay. They're Somali or, or yeah, right. yeah, they, they, yeah. 
they can name the countries you're from, right? Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's just different. And, and when we talk about football, because I believe, I believe this, I believe there's only a few things in the world that can unify people. I believe it's music, mm-hmm. it's food, and I believe it's football. I believe those are the three most powerful things in the world to unify people. And what we get wrong is we say unity means we believe the same. Unity doesn't mean we believe the same. Unity means that we come together simply because we're human beings and we have we, everyone deserves that mm-hmm. respect and that right to be treat, treated equally simply because they're a human being. Not because we believe the same, not because we eat the same food, not because we not because we're from the same country. No, simply because we're human beings, we should fight for unity, we should fight for justice, and we should fight for everyone to be treated fairly and equally. And we don't have that across the board in the country. We don't have it in football, we don't have it right. much power NBA has. It's still not. NFL, you can go down the list, all these different, you know, and then in corporate America, that's just a whole different ballgame, man. Yeah. Yep. You you kind of answered my question. I was about to throw to you both of you if 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 uh if the game is unifying America and and, and in your case it sounds like an absolute no. George, what about you? If football if uh football soccer is unifying America? Yeah. Um no, it's not. And it's a shame because do I mean you I feel, do you you George Dematellis, do yeah. you Rod Underwood feel like the game is saying, hey, Rod, hey, George, we love you. Come be a part of us. Come be a part of this that we want to grow in this country and make it, you know, something special. Do you as individuals, I'm not talking mm-hmm. about as a coach or as a journalist, maybe if you want to, you know, interject in that perspective, you can. But do you feel as individuals, as human beings, that, and, and I'm talking about as two black men living in America, that the game is looking to embrace you, that's looking to bring you in, that's looking to draw you in, to be able to put in your grain of salt. Well, and here, here's the thing for me, right? What I've always loved about football, unlike any other sport in the world, right? What I've loved about football, it embraced individuality. So, you know, you look across the football pitch and you see, all these different guys, they have different hairstyles, you know, they are, they look different, they act different, they are different, and, and it didn't matter, it didn't matter, football, football didn't matter if you were big, fast, strong, so in football, American football, you got to be big, fast, strong, you got to have physical qualities that allow you to play football, basketball, you got to have physical qualities that allow you to play, you look at it, you look across a football pitch, look at the size of Messi, you look at, the, then you look at the size of Boateng, and then you look at the size of Ibrahimovic, you know, so it's, yeah, uh, look at these different dynamics of the different variants of, of players. That's what was so great to me as a kid growing up. You could just be you. You could just be you, and you can you can find yourself on a team. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes when you see teams on on a, on a you know, on a pitch when they're doing the anthems and you see like the different sizes of the players if you look at it it looks pretty much like a stock market yeah. chart you know you see them going up and down like this it's it's really you, you just see the different sizes and, and the different abilities and the different things that you mentioned and I, I find that quite fascinating that you know you're not only just talking about one particular aspect you're talking about economic aspects you're talking about yeah. um you know, social situations, idiosyncrasies, playing style, all these types of things yeah. that come and be are converged in, into one player. Forget 11 or 22 or 23. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I agree with that. Look, the individuality is what makes it great. Well, one of the reasons is great. Football is the best sport on the planet. Soccer, mm. football, soccer. So, yeah, uh, I, I definitely see that. I think when, as, when you ask about as an individual and football in America, I don't th- it's not the game's fault. To me, it's the people who run the game. Because to Rod's point, look, you don't have to be sick. You don't have to be built like Cam Newton to be a great football, a soccer player, football, soccer player. You don't. You could be messy, five foot seven, and be the most dangerous man on the pitch. I mean, we 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 used to do South America. Remember Diego Bonanote, who was like, he probably was five, four foot. He probably was five he one. He was four eleven. Four eleven, and he was he was a pretty good player. So to me, I think the people who run soccer in this country have done a poor job of incorporating people. And the number one reason is is the socioeconomic class because. We all in, in this in this country. Uh, yeah, look, there's a lot of poor white people. We all know that. But in this country, normally in, in societies where you have a, a variety of complexions, we'll put it that way, the darker you are, the more you tend to be poor. It's not an absolute, but it's just the trend that the poorer mm-hmm. you are, you usually well, let me put it this way. The darker you are, the, there's the, the you, you're more likely to be poor in the socioeconomic scale than if you are lighter skinned or or quote unquote white right so u.s soccer if we're talking about the sport in this country has done a a poor job of promoting the game to poor neighborhoods which has as a side effect limited the amount of black kids and, and poor hispanic kids that can move up to the national team level can get that training to be great footballers and they're missing out on an opportunity because not every kid that grows up in a black neighborhood is going to be a super a football player. Have that build is tall enough to be a basketball player. Me, I'm I'm five eleven. I, I tried to play basketball when I was a kid. I was terrible at it, and I'm not. I'm 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 a I'm a little bit overweight, so I'm, I have the the body now to play American football. But when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have the body to play American football, and I didn't want to be getting concussions every other day. So. I could have played soccer. Now, luckily, I got lucky because I have Caribbean parents and Caribbean people love soccer, love football, soccer. So I was exposed to it. But U.S. soccer didn't have a program in my neighborhood to promote the game. U.S. soccer, we, we, we know this one being in Dade County, Liberty City, that area is a massive, is a poor, predominantly black area. The NFL has a youth training center there. Where's U.S. soccer's training center? No, oh, little Haiti too. Little Haiti, there. same thing. Where's the U.S. Soccer's training center there? Where Where are they at? No, nowhere to be found. Okay, and these people, they, they, you tell them if a kid who's a poor black kid, you give you tell them, look, your family can you can make eight hundred thousand dollars playing in the MLS. You think they won't take it? Of course they will. Instead of possibly, um, instead of a, a more of a long shot of an NBA career or NFL career, so. Um, to me, when I say, when you say as an individual, has it helped, uh, how do black people kind of fit in as an individual, I, as a so- soccer broadcaster and seeing how the, the business has progressed, I have to say that it's the people running us soccer or this football in this country who are letting, who are missing an opportunity to, for lack of a better word, expand the talent pool and make the game more popular. There is no, there's nothing stopping 
soccer from being the number one sport in this country? Nothing. Well, let me put it, well, I should say that. If they were able to get over that hurdle of the, the socioeconomic hurdle and by byproduct of racial hurdle, football, soccer would be the number one sport in this country and it wouldn't even be close because American football is starting to dip in popularity because of the Kaepernick thing and then because of the concussions. Basketball is taking over, but like Rod mentioned, you don't have, you have to be six foot eight to be any good <laughs> to have a shot. Okay. Yeah, Most people yeah, are yeah. not. You, I've only I've only seen one Muggsy Bogues. Yeah, Mug one of those. You know, I've seen like two basketball players. In the That's NBA it. Below five foot eleven. Spud Webb and Muggsy Bogues retired twenty years ago. We haven't had under anybody under six foot since since them. Iverson okay, is like is six foot six one. So yeah. I mean, th this is this is to me a situation where as a, as a black person in this country who loves football soccer. We're, they're, they, the, the people who run the game in this country are missing out on an opportunity to diversify the, 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 the playing field, for lack of a better term, by ignoring communities of color because of their socioeconomic status. That's the way I look at it. So yeah. I, that, that's, yeah. I think that, that's tied into all this conversation. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when I, when I, if, if, I take, if I take the road and I take the gamut, right, let's, let's work from the bottom up, right? For a kid, right? For a kid to play recreational soccer these days, right? For a kid to play recreational soccer these days, and and a lot of places around the country, because I can't speak exactly right, you know, to everything. A lot of places around the country to play recreational soccer, a kid could be in it from anywhere from a hundred to five hundred dollars. Mm. All right. For a kid to play intermediate soccer, so not not necessarily, you know. VA, the Developmental Academy, or ECNL. Mm -hmm. It's just middle of the road soccer, right? Middle of the road soccer. You're, you're in it for, you know, $1,000 to $3,000. And then you go to the, what we call elite soccer, which is not really elite soccer when you talk about it from the technical development side of it. That's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. Three to $3,000 to $10,000. That's a barrier. For one, wait, 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 hold up, Ron. One kid. One kid. Yeah, I, I, just again, to make sure, because they'll be like, well, yeah, you know, 3000 that's not that bad. But you start including flights, travel, yeah, hotel, yeah. One kid. food, equipment. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, you, know you, you can see. So just imagine this, right? Imagine this. You have clubs, right? They set budgets out per mm -hmm. kid, right? You know, yeah. and, and some of them now they pay over 10 months, they pay two to $400 a month. And some of that is before they travel. Some of that's before they even buy their uniform. Well, there's an academy down here that costs $81,000. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, the, so, and I mean, there's no guarantee. And, and that's the, 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 the part that I would think is frustrating as well, is that you're, these kids, the $81,000 academy, there's no guarantee that that kid is going to make it to the point where they could be on the first team of, of any club in the world. So that's money no. down the drain. Well, so let's, now let's go to the top, right? And I'm going to, this, this, for me, this is like really important. Let's go to the most elite and that's us soccer, right? Mm -hmm. I know because I've had conversations with kids, right? Who told me, Hey coach, I got to decide 
if I'm going to put my last $20 of gas in my car to come to training, I'm going to use that for food. I've had kids tell me I can't make this trip because I part of the money that I make pays for my family's food to eat. So if I go on this trip, I can't provide the food that I normally provide for my family to eat. Mm -hmm. wow. I've had those conversations, right? I've had those conversations. But at the top level, we're not talking about those things. We're not talking about the... Uh, we might be talking about, we're not talking about it how it should be. We're talking about other things that are important to the game, but they're not as, as important as making sure that our youth are taken care of and that our youth can play the game, that our youth can be involved in the game on a consistent basis. Now, when you talk about the professional level, right, you look at USL, right? There's guys in the USL. When I was there, right? I don't know what the I don't know what is now, but when I was mm -hmm. there, guys make it eight hundred dollars a month. It's not that far off right now. Eight hundred dollars a month. You can't survive off of that. Yeah. You you have MLS is done in terms of finances. You can't knock. I remember back when they first started what it was to get into the league and blah blah blah. So the growth of the game at the MLS level and the money has been good. Is it still where it needs to be? No, it's not where it needs to be, but the, but the dynamic of the, of the growth has been good. But here's the thing that I have to continually ask myself, going back to what George said about the diversity, right? Mm -hmm. How many decision makers in MLS at the corporate offices in New York, U.S. soccer at the corporate office in, in U.S. soccer, at the team level in every team, is there, is there staff from ownership down to academy level reflective of the diversity of our country? That is the question, and that's what's ultimately going to change and not have people like George, people like me, people like you know Eddie Johnson, people like Roy Lasseter, people like Raul Diaz Arce, people like Echeverry feel like they have a chance to really be in those positions to influence and impact the game of soccer so that it, it is inclusive of everybody. Mm -hmm. And right now, we cannot honestly say that is, a, that is correct. It is not. Right. So it's just like, it's just like in the court. <laughs> yeah. In the court system. So many times say you you are in a jury of your peers, right? Say you go to court, you but the person that let's say the person that is on, let's take this, let's 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 turn the tables. Let's say that there is a Caucasian person on trial and they go to jury trial, and the majority of the jury is black. Is that really a jury of their peers? Not really. And you flip that and say black, and then they're on trial, and then the majority of the jury is white. Is that a jury of their peers? So how, how can there be inclusivity if people haven't, because of the racial divide and the social economic divide, because you have to understand those two are tied together. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Those two are tied together. The social economic divide creates the racial divide. 
And there are some simple flat out people that just don't like people because of their color. Forget about the racial divide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, forget about the social economic part of it. Is it also a lack? Oh, good, good, good. I'll ask. I'll ask. There would be, there would be more, there would be more people of different colors leading on the pitch and the coaching aspect of it, directing academies, being executives, being sporting directors, being technical directors in clubs, if staffs really made the effort and ownership groups really made the effort to say our 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 club reflects our city something that i did yeah. when i was a director once when i first stepped up and i had my first interview i said i'm going to make sure that the academy looks like the city from the players to the coaching staff everything i could going to do my best. Not saying that just because I'm going to go out and hire a Hispanic because we need to. No, the best person to do the job. And my goal is to make sure that it represents who we are as a city. And at the very least, just give them, get them in the door so they can, if they're not the best person for the job, then let them prove it by how they interview. You know, right. Exactly. But if you don't even if they don't even get a chance to get into the interview, you might you're going to miss probably the best person for the job because yeah. because of that. So that that's that's a that's an aspect as, of, of, of it as well. And and from the broadcasting side, mm -hmm. you know, Rod, you mentioned Atlanta. Uh, I've been there a couple times. And I mean, you know, this Rod, it's a chocolate city. I mean, the, like the yeah. last seven mayors have been black. Right. Something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, Martin Luther King was born in Atlanta. So obviously the, the black population is very, very strong yes. and, and very influential. And if you look at, and, and like I said, this is from a broadcasting perspective, you look at the Atlanta United broadcast team. Is that a reflection of the city? No. I, I, and I love, they do a great job. They do a great job. I, I you know, I work with one of them, Kevin, he's, he deserves the job. He's great. But they don't have any black people in front of the camera on the broadcasting team for a city that is, has a huge, massive black population. You know, that's, they do a great job. Don't get me wrong, but you can't, you can't, you gotta, you, it's just something about that is not right. Something about it. And it's not the, the talent's fault. It's not their fault. It's the people no. hiring their fault. And here's the thing, because this is something that I, that I, you know, as a coach, right? I look at things and, and even looking at this scenario, right? Like I said earlier, you know, you lose out to someone, okay, yeah, their, their CV looks good and yeah. And I think, Juan, you, you, you have a different take on it. I know you do. Um, is that, and, and I'm starting to have that take because they used to be, oh yeah, that guy was good. Yeah, he, yeah, okay, I'm comfortable with that. But the reality is, the reality is, why couldn't I have had that chance and create the same success? George, why could you not be in front of the camera in Atlanta? Yeah, you're, yeah, the guy you said he deserves a job, he's good, but could you not be just as good? But right. did you even get a chance? Did I even get a chance? No, I didn't even get a chance. Why did not I get a chance? Simply because I'm not good enough? Because my abilities don't allow me to be there? I don't know, man. Right. And I think we all got to get over that because I think we've been all making excuses. I do it all the time. And I do it partly because 
I'm trying to make, I'm just trying to get through, right? So I say, oh yeah, that guy's good, good, okay, next opportunity. But I have to start saying to myself, I'm just as good as that guy. If I had that chance, could I do that? But if I don't get a chance to prove it, right? I went, when an MLS club, one of my friends was gonna be in a prominent position at MLS club, and he used to be a coach. And, and I said to him, when he first was gonna hire the coach, I said to him, I said to him, make sure that you let the coach coach and let the coach pass or fail on his own merit, meddle in his business. So what's my point there? My point is we all of color need the opportunity to pass or fail. People are making the judgment before us before we even get the opportunity. Right. And, and, and right. you know what? And and, I'm glad and, you and mentioned. Juan, let me just, been. let me just say something real Go quick ahead. there. A lot of people who, who, uh, I don't know how I can put it. A lot of people who, who, who think that we're kind of like black folk are asking for handouts or, you know, who think that we're, we're asking for more than what we deserve or whatever. They, they don't understand. We're not asking for you to hire us. We're asking us just to give us the opportunity to interview for the job. And, and then we can impress you with what we know or how we handle certain things. I think this, that's something that's, or not, or not, yeah. right. You know, that's something that gets lost in, in trends that when we talk about uh, black people trying to get rights in this country. I've never met a black person in my life who said, give me the job because I'm black. No, they say, just give me the opportunity to prove that I can do the job. You know, no one I know, no one I've ever met said, you know, I deserve this job because I'm black. No, they say I deserve this job because I'm qualified. And that's the, that's the part that's the problem is that we're not even getting the opportunities. Once we get the opportunities, then you could judge us on our merit. But all we want is the opportunity. We're not asking for anything more than that. And by the way, to just add on to that, I mean, you've been one that's been rather consistent too. Now, and, and now we're not even talking, I'm not even talking about the, the, the skin color issue or, you know, ethnicity issue or well, maybe ethnicity, just, but more the nationality issue when it comes to, to the game here. When, I mean, you've said, hey, you know what? Bring some American broadcasters, but let them pass or fail based on their own merits as well. Right, right. I mean, I mean, yeah. Listen, listen, I had an owner one time tell me, Rod's going to be hard for you to get a job because you're an American. I had, I had an owner tell me yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. I don't want to tell me that. Yeah, I, I, that's happened to me. That's happened to me and Juan as broadcasters, where they've said, "Oh, well, we." I've had people in my job have told me that they prefer to hear games in English from with, with a British accent, no matter how boring they are, or no matter how much knowledge they don't have or do have. I, I've had people when I've when I've made comments about certain players or express my opinion. I've heard people say, oh, on social media, whatever, they've said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an American. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So that's another hurdle to, over, to, to, to overcome. Yeah. Well, look, I've, I've had, you know, I have a good agent. I have a good agent now, right? But I've had agents in the past tell me, we don't want to work with you because you're from the U.S. You're, you're not qualified. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez. So I mean, I mean, yeah. so so I mean, in, in your particular cases, it's it's double because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you, instead of having to work two times harder, you might have to work four times harder. I mean, working yeah. hard, you know, using use, using that term loosely as well, because it's it's part of part of thing. And, and 
you deal with it here all the time. You know, I mean, and not that my my issues are even pertinent to this conversation, but just kind of throw it in there. I've had I've had you know productions for different soccer leagues ask me to do an English proficiency exam. Jeez, that's just <laughs> jeez. <laughs> okay, and I'm, I'm talking like we're talking right now. Like, well, we have doubts that you can speak the English language. My goodness. Wow. That's discrimination right there. Again, I, I don't you know, want I, I to sidetrack it and make it, you know, bring my, but, but, but it was just something I wanted to add, add on there because the purpose of this episode is for you, individ, you know, you, George, you, Rod, to talk about what's going on, especially with the reality that's going on now in the United States with everything that's going on with, with Black Lives Matter, with the protests, with everything yeah. that's been going on. It's not just about you know, getting beat up on the street or, or, or being oppressed by, by, by the police, but it's also the, the whole systemic aspect of it, the whole cultural aspect of it that extends out, that branches out into cultural aspects yeah. in sometimes yeah, like, certain industry. Know, it's like, you know, echoing what George said, not, no, no, I, I will speak for this black man. Yeah. If someone came up to me and said, Rod, we're giving you the job because you're black, I would say, no. Same here. No, thank you, because you're saying that you don't believe in me. You're doing it because you set the quota, you need to do whatever. You see, but you really, to me, you say you don't believe in me. Yep. And yeah. as we have this conversation, because here's the one thing I, I want to be very cognizant of, because also I, be, I believe everybody in the country has a right to protest and protest and protest. But I also believe that a lot of the protesting that's happened, and it's taken away from really what George Floyd really would have hoped that would be is this sort of emotional grabbing onto the emotion of the conversation, emotion of the moment. But speaking here today has really made me realize is that we just need a chance and we don't get a chance. Yeah. We just need no. a chance. That's it. And that's all I, that's all I because I have this conversation now, not because for me, because if it was about me, I wouldn't be having this conversation because I'd still be protecting me. And really what made me want to have this conversation is my wife came to me when all this started happening. She says, hey, Rod, my boy, my oldest boy is 13. He goes, you need to have the conversation with him about being black. You know what? No, we had talked about a few months before we need to start having the conversation about sex. But now we're having the conversation about, we need to have the conversation about he's black and what potential could happen to him just because he's black. Yep. So that's been one of the major driving forces now to have this conversation. And, you know, as, as my oldest daughter is 27 and my worry about my oldest, this is how crazy the world has changed. She's mm -hmm. born in 1992. My worry was having a daughter that was part Hispanic, part black, the limited opportunity she had, would have because she's part black, part Hispanic, and a woman. Oof. Now it's changed. In the U.S. To, in the U.S. Yeah. Now it's changed in 2020 that I got to talk to my 13-year-old boy that you could be severely hurt by authority because you're black. Yep. I had the same conversation. Yep. I had the same conversation. I don't have kids, but I have a nephew and my niece, my brother's children. Uh, my yeah. brother's is in the army station in Orlando with his wife and, and her and their kids, but he has two kids here in Miami. And since I'm, I feel like I'm the male 
figure in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I've known them since they were born. So I've taken, you know, they sleep over my house and change diapers. So I'm not a parent, but I feel like their parent, their father figure, because mm-hmm. my brother's gone. And I had to talk to my oldest nephew, who's 16, Alex. And I had to tell him, look, this is the situation with the police. I, I personally told him, I said, look, this is life or death. This isn't a game. If you see a police officer, you go the opposite direction. I mean, because there's nothing on a police officer's uniform that says good cop, bad cop. Nothing on a police officer's uniform that says racist, not racist. We don't know. So when you're playing with your life, you cannot take that chance. So I've had to tell my, my nephew, who's 16 now, and he goes out with his friends and all of that. I said, look, if you see a police, first of all, don't, get any, don't attract any attention to yourself so that the police don't even look your way. But if you see a police officer, go the other direction because you just don't know. You can't trust them. I've had that conversation with my nephew, my niece, uh, Raya. She's going to be 11 this year, and I'm going to have to talk to her about it because she, it's the same situation. And instead of talking about how good their grades were this semester, I have to talk to them about the dangers of living in America. That's sad, but it's a way of life. It's a way of life because if I don't talk to them about it and Rod doesn't talk to his kids about it, they might, they might not be around. That's devastating. That is devastating to, as a parent, you know that your kid's life is in danger. That's devastating. So you have to educate them now so that they can survive, so they can get to the point where they're old enough and make whatever decision they want of of life. So I completely understand that, even though I'm not a parent, like I said, my nephew and niece are like, I treat them like my kids. So this is is a tough time in in America right now. And it's, there's a, there's a, for me personally, there's a real kind of rational side that says, okay, let's stay calm, talk this out, try to get to the point where we all live together and be happy as one. And then there's part of me, I'm going to be honest with you, that's real militant that goes, you know what, F the police. This is, this is messed up. Let's get them all and, and hope they all go to jail. And that's not productive. That's not productive to think that way, to be angry yeah, about it. At, at this you know, stage, neither, neither one seems productive. You know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's a conflict. I'm just talking about myself personally. It's a conflict between being a human being and just taking everybody as individuals and trying not to look at skin color, ethnicity, race. Well, there's only one race. That's the human race, but the the, the skin color and ethnicity. And then there's another part of me as a black man who's angry, who's saying, yo man, F these people and let's go get them and, you know, look out for yourself and, and, and you know the world is messed up, and we just gotta you know we just gotta look out for self and f these people and f the cops. You know there's that that struggle within me personally that I have to deal with because it's just so crazy right now. And I don't I want to be someone who takes people as individuals. You if you cool with me, I'm cool with you regardless of skin color ethnicity. But it's hard now. It's hard. George, you mentioned something. Well, you know, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Ron. You go ahead. You go ahead. No. Both of you, actually, now that I think of it, mentioned it uh, about Europe and, and how they tackle this particular topic. Is it cultural intelligence or just a willingness to engage with the past, a willingness to, to go and have that conversation, a willingness to go and, 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 and collectively 
try and, and, and vanquish those demons as a society? Well, I, I think it's country by country, right? Because some countries I've been in, I'll give an example. Let, let me, let me, I'll answer that question, but I'll lead into that question. Sure. So let's, let's be honest, right? Let's, we have to be honest, George. I mean, I know I can speak for myself because like with, within races, there is racism within races against the same colors. For instance, if you are more educated, people look at you different. Or if you are a lighter color within your race or a darker color within your race, all these things, right? So a lot of the races are pointing fingers, but they also got to look within to figure out their own. Something in the, and I'll speak to the black culture again, we, we have accepted the N-word so easily in society that it's taken the sting out, but when we get mad when we don't like how people use it. And, you know, that's something that we need, we need to address too as well. It's like within communities, within individual, like in the white community, if, they, if they, their social economic status is low, then, hey, they're white trash, or they are hillbillies, or they, you know, all those things within the racism within the race is also a problem. And then when I take that out in Europe, right, a lot of the countries I go to in Europe, it's simply, we are Spanish, or we are Croatian. It's not that we are Black Spanish or mm. Croatian. We are just Croatian. And in the U.S., we say things like, oh, he's a Black American. Why can't he just be a Black U.S. citizen or Hispanic U.S. citizen or simply he is a U.S. citizen or he is a citizen of the U.S. But why do we have to distinguish? Because I think that creates some some friction a lot of times in our society. So, Juan, to your question, I think some of that view of how people see it, right? They see it in a different light, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny you mentioned, Rod, the N-word, because I don't say that word, period. And I caught my nephew saying it a uh, few weeks ago, and I told him, oh, what, don't you ever say that word. I have I stopped because, you know, I was young and you're young, and, and, and I love hip-hop music. Yeah. But, you know, they say it a lot in hip-hop music. I love still what listen to it. And you're young. You don't know any better. So I used to say the N-word all the time. Then when I yeah. hit about 18, 19, and you start to you start to hear other people use it and then you see how disrespectful it is then you start to say man this is not right if you have any kind of conscious of self you say it's not right so i stopped using the n-word like for 20 years now because it's just it's a word that brings us down there's nothing positive about it i don't care how you spell it i don't care how you say it there's nothing positive about that word at all and I told my nephew, I said, you are not an N-word. You are a king. You are a prince. You are not an N-word. So don't let your friends tell you that word. And don't you use that word. If I catch you using the word, you're going to see you're going to see the N-word come out of me. You know what I'm saying? So I had to kind of educate him on that. Uh, Yeah. And and in terms of, yes, we in in the black community, the black community, we have a lot of issues. You, You mentioned, Rod, there's colorism. If you're lighter skinned, you get treated a certain way. You're darker skinned, you get treated a certain way. If you are if you are uh, come from an upper class family, you're bougie. If you come from the ghetto, you're a hood rat or you're, you're what is it, ratchet. Uh, if, I remember as a kid growing up, they used to call me Haitian booty scratcher. Oh, you got Haitian body odor, you know, uh, African booty scratcher, all of that, you know. So that, there's definitely issues that, which I think we need to work on those first. Before we start 
any kind of protests, we need to, we talk about Black Lives Matter, we need to incorporate that within each other. It doesn't matter if you're from Ethiopia or from Egypt or if you're from Haiti or from Hattiesburg. If you have that common thread of, of African descendants, then we need to be looking at each other and say, you know, our Black Lives Matter to each other more than to the, 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 the structure or the, 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 the supremacist power structure, if you want to use that expression. Yes. So that's, that's, that's certainly, uh, uh, that's the, to me, the number one problem that we as Black people have is the hate that we have within our own people. That to me is the number one problem. But to the point about Europe, yeah, you're right, Rod. Look, everybody said, yeah, I'm Croatian, I'm Spanish, I'm English, I'm this and that. Uh, the history of those, of those continents, uh, um, of those continents, of that, of those countries are, I mean, they used to fight each other all the time. Both world wars are coming out of Europe. So they really fought hard to establish their own identities. But remember that diversity, they don't have the racial diversity. Well, England does. England yeah. does. Uh, oh, France and does France too. too. But Spain, not so much. Portugal, a little bit. But you basically go west of, or east, is it west or east of France? I always get the yeah, geography. Yeah, it's very, it's very few and far between. Right. Well, you start going you exactly know, east of France or, I mean, or Spain or exactly east of east of France. You know, there isn't a big black Polish population that could get affirmative action or civil rights. I mean, you yeah. know what I mean. So the the history of the continent is different than the United States. I mean, the United States history is is really unique because of the immigration, the slavery, and, and so many other issues as well. Remember, half the country really is, is really Mexi is Mexico. If you think about the history, that over there in the, like, west of the Mississippi, or even west of whatever mountain yeah. range between Nevada, yeah, Sierra Nevada. The entire, the entire Southwest. Yeah, the entire Southwest. I mean, look, that's all, I mean, New Mexico, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, those are all Spanish names. So that, that's a part of it as well. Uh, oh, by the way, just historical note. I got to say this as a Haitian. Louisiana Purchase is because of the Haitian Revolution. I just had to say that. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, the history is just so crazy. And I think we still have a problem where we don't see each other's humanity. You know, this is the key. As black people... There are still non-black people out there who still look at us like, I don't know, I don't know if it's slaves or like we're here to amuse you or entertain people. And they forget, you know, Rod is, is making a living so his family can see his kids can go to college, just like any other white family, just like yeah. my family. You know, we have to have a job, we have to feed our black people don't we don't survive off of dancing. Yeah. You know, we need to eat and drink and be healthy too. And I think people just have lost, because of the history, especially in the United States, they don't see us as human beings. And when you don't see people as human beings, you're, you're, you leave yourself open to all kinds of atrocities. And the N-word is part of that. That's the N-word is part of it. If we stop calling each other the N-word, then people would stop, stop calling us the N-word. If we started, black people started calling each other mattresses. If we said, yo, what's up, my mattress? I guarantee you within three weeks, all the non-black people in America would start calling each other mattresses. Guarantee. But th there's, there's so many layers to this, but it's, it's all about come down to, do you respect humanity, period? R regardless of what skin color a person has. If you don't respect humanity, then you know what? I, I, don't, I don't need to be in your presence. But if you respect humanity, you truly do, 
then you need to stop looking at people's skin color and give them a chance to be themselves. That's what it is, comes down to. Gentlemen, it's been awesome to have you on. I mean, this, this, this could probably have 15, 20, 30 episodes that you could probably talk about and, and, and unpack even more. Um, I'm sorry, Rod, I'm sorry I took too long. I, I, I do TV, so I talk a lot, so my bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you should hear them when they only have 40 seconds, I'll quickly can say so many things. I should say, hey, George, you have 20 seconds. But again, th thanks for being on, gentlemen. But one last question, and, and I, 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 I guess this is where I guess it was the best and only time and appropriate time where I had any right to interject at all. It's that some of us also have to also try and, and, and break some of those um, barriers because me as a Latino here in the United States, I know the defects that many of the communities that fall under that umbrella have towards themselves, towards black people, towards, and, and George, you know here in Miami how it is as well. Uh, it might be a little bit discreet. Sometimes it's not very, sometimes it's, it's not even subtle at all but you're starting to see a bit of a change. Some people are starting to finally, I don't know, maybe they needed that wake up call, if you will, to start saying, damn, okay, this is real. This is a thing. What do they do? What, what, how, what, what's the next step to be done in terms of them, not only understanding, but also gaining more empathy and, and saying, hey, you know what? No, this is bullshit. We can't let people take, you know, be taken advantage of, be exploited, be oppressed the way that they are right now. Rod. Well, I think the, I think one of the biggest things that we really truly have to, that we really truly have to get to, right, is we need to really listen to one another, not shout at each other, but have conversation, right? Because if we don't have conversation and we don't give people a chance to talk, we don't give people a chance to express themselves. We don't get a chance to look in someone's eyes and see the hurt and the pain that they feel because this is their perception of what is going on. Forget if it's wrong or right, it's still their perception. And we as humans must do our best to help people get through that part and also to have empathy for them and to show care for them and to give them the opportunity, right? Because if we don't, if we don't, we gotta continue, right? I, I, I look at it like this, and I'll, this will be my last statement. I look at, I kind of look at life, right? I look at what my parents went through being born in the 40s, right after the war ended, World War II ended, going through Vietnam, going through civil war, going through civil war, going through, uh, going through civil rights. Um, and then I come along and, uh, I see the world and I, I see the world and I see what it is. And each decade I would say to myself, yeah, maybe a little bit better because there are certain things, racial things that would happen. Okay. 70s. Okay. The 80s is going to be better than the eight, The 80s is going to be better than the seventies. You know, the nineties is going to be better than the eighties. The two thousands are going to be better than the nineties. And we're still at the same place mm -hmm. 75 years later. Yeah. Only thing that's changed, laws have changed to make people act differently, but people haven't changed their fundamental belief of what they see in people through race. Yeah. Yeah. George? I, I think for me, 
Uh, yeah, I like what Rod said, so I, I'll, I'm going to piggyback off of that. I think for me, this is something that has to be generational. So if you really want your kids to live in a world that's peaceful, you, gotta, you have to teach them that peaceful. It has to be passed down from generation to generation. So you have to teach your kids not to look at race, to just judge people like Martin Luther King, the content of their character, instead of looking at race. And you have to teach them to teach their kids that so that they, it goes generation to generation. The fact that this has been going on for 80 years means that the generations haven't been teaching these, their kids how to not be racist or to be less racist or less prejudiced. So for me, it's about doing, going inside yourself saying, what's wrong with me? Am I really a human being, someone who cares about humanity? And if I do, I gotta teach my kids this. And then my kids have to teach their kids that. That's the only way it's gonna happen is if we break it down generation to generation, pass it down generation to generation. Because people say history repeats itself. You know why? Because people are stupid, you know? So if you, if you stop right now and you say, look, I don't want my kids to feel this way about any group of people, then you gotta teach them that. And then you have to teach your kids to teach their kids that. And then it goes generation to generation. Gentlemen, thank you again for being here on Beyond the Pitch. Uh, Rod, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, you can follow me at Cut Inside. That's on Twitter. Uh, follow me at Cut Inside. That's the best place. That's why I'm most active. I'm on LinkedIn, too. I have a website, rodunderwood.com. Uh, you can find me on, on all those places. You know, I, I try to be relevant even though I'm old. But I try to be relevant on the social media. <laughs> You're okay, not, all right. You're not that much older than us. Like we're all me and Juan are in our forties, so it's not like you yeah. know like we're teenagers. You guys are youngsters, man. You guys are youngsters. <laughs> you guys are youngsters. <laughs> what about you? What about you, George? Um, uh, I, I keep it. Uh, I have my my Twitter and Instagram is gdmatellis eight on Twitter and Instagram. I got to keep one one name for everything, or else I'll get confused. So, uh, gdmatellis eight on Twitter and Instagram. All right, gentlemen. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. Boy, this this was a long one. Yeah. And of course, there's a, there's yeah, a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I just hope, I mean, I really hope that once this gets out, I mean, my look, my life is about my life is about faith, but I really hope this gets out and I really hope that it really influences changes to go on what George said. We we can have a generational impact, a generational change, and that's really what's gonna be important. Actually, you know, I just thought well, so my, <laughs> I already said bye to everybody. Now I have one more question. <laughs> Ron, for those upcoming black young coaches, what do you say? You know, at this stage of my career, I still want that big job. I still want that big opportunity. I still want mm -hmm. that. But more importantly, I want up-and-coming blacks, up-and-coming underrepresented people in the game to say that I want to pave that way for them. I want them, I want them to have a pathway that they can see and see clearly that they have a chance. And I hope they can achieve way more than I've ever achieved in the game. George, what about you? As far as young and up and coming black broadcasters? Uh, I, my advice Talk to them- broadcasters, as you say. Yeah, I would say to them, look, just get as much knowledge as possible about all the leagues in the world, Europe, in the North America, South America, learn a different language and be open to other cultures. That's the main thing. I've been blessed that because of where I work, even though I think there, sh there should be more minority representation, but still I've been open. I've been 
blessed to learn about other people's cultures. And that's made me a better person. And it's made me able to, 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 uh, to talk and, and adapt to people. So get a good education, learn another language, learn as much about all these football leagues as possible, you know, study broadcasting, obviously, and then be open to other people's cultures. Okay. Now we're going to leave. Okay. Gentlemen, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope we have this conversation more and more often because it's something that we, we all, we all definitely need. So again, thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. From the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world, from wherever the beautiful game is played, this is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Football!